When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. into the Project Upland Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Larson. Welcome to the show for episode number 49. The Project Upland Podcast is brought to you by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, the finest rough grouse and woodcock hunting experience in northern Minnesota. Talk to my buddy Jerry. He's already looking ahead to the season, fall 2019. Book your dates today. Check out pineridgegrousecamp.com and by Onyx Maps, the world's most comprehensive mapping application for outdoors men and women go to onyxmaps.com sign up for a free seven-day trial go ahead do it download the app from the google play store or apple itunes download the app start scrolling around on there with your fingers and get back to me tell me you're not hooked tell me you can't use onyx maps to improve your hunting experience i don't believe it check it out onyxmaps.com and by gumleaf usa High quality, handcrafted, premium rubber boots. I've told you about them before. I love my gum leaf boots. They're waterproof. Keep my feet dry, warm, comfortable. That's the most important thing. Keeps me going in the field. Go to gumleafusa.com. Use the promo code PU2018 for free shipping from gumleafusa.com. And by Dogtra Collars. For over 30 years, Dogtra has collaborated with industry professionals to create class-leading tools, For e-collar training, GPS tracking, and ball training to support dog owners in developing top-notch dogs. That's what we're all about in the bird dog world, developing and training top-notch bird dogs. Dogtra makes a heck of a product. They're supporting this podcast. For that, we thank them. Check out Dogtra Collars at dogtra.com. This week's winner of the podcast giveaway is Tom Jenkins from Bend, Oregon. Shout out to Tom. He lined up today's guest for us. For that, we thank him. He will have some Project Upland gear on the way very soon. Thank you, Tom. And you could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. All you have to do is make a meaningful contribution to this show. You can do that in any of these ways, or maybe you think of something else. But you can always leave us a rating, leave the podcast a review, subscribe to the podcast, share the podcast post when we post it, or send us some listener feedback or a guest suggestion, just like Tom did. Love to hear from you. My email is nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. 
Don't forget the Project Upland magazine is now live. Issue zero went out the end of last year. Issue one coming right up. We talked to Matt Soberg last week about the magazine. I'm excited about issue one. Go to projectupland.com, look for the magazine link, and subscribe. Project Upland Magazine, issue one, coming your way real soon. All right, let's do it. Let's get into today's interview. My guest today is somewhat of a wing shooting celebrity in the sense that he's been on TV for quite a while. Many of you may know him, you may recognize him, but I had never actually talked to him or heard his story, and we did that today. My guest today is Scott Linden, host and creator of the TV show Wing Shooting USA. He's also done a ton of other stuff in the outdoor industry, but his true love is upland bird hunting, and he shares that with us today along with a whole bunch of other stuff and a great conversation I had with Scott. I hope you enjoy it. Let's get into it. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast of Wing Shooting USA, Scott Linden. Scott Linden, welcome to the Project Upland Podcast. Pleasure to be there. Thanks for joining us today. As always, I'm looking forward to this conversation and talking all about upland birds and a little bit of western wing shooting as that's kind of your your flavor, your specialty, that's where you are. And I think with that, we'll start right there. Scott, why don't you give us a little bit of background? Tell us where we're talking to you from today and where you call home base and, and where you most often get into the uplands. I live on the edge of the Great Basin in uh, east, central eastern Oregon near the town of Bend. Uh, I came here for the fly fishing 32 years ago. Then I got a bird dog and haven't looked back. No kidding. So before you moved to Oregon, I guess we'll we'll jump into that, your upland hunting story. What, was upland hunting not a part of your life before you moved out there 32 years ago? That's correct. I was, um, you know, as a city kid, my outdoor experience in Los Angeles was um, dodging bullets and drive-by shootings and uh, and watching the lowriders with envy. Um, <laughs> eventually moved, moved my way north, further north, further north, was in the music business, got out of that, became a fly fisher. Um, when I decided to start my own business, I decided to start it in a place where I could fly fish every day. That ended up being Bend, Oregon. <clears throat> Moved up here, and uh, a couple years after that, I lost the argument. My wife said, we're getting a dog. I was given permission to pick the dog in the back of a pickup truck. Downtown was the ugliest animal I'd ever seen. I said, I want one of those. <laughs> we stopped. Turns out the dog was pregnant, owned by one of her sorority sisters. We got a puppy, and... Uh, that's how I became a fan of German wire-haired pointers and figured I'd probably better buy a shotgun and learn how to use it. That's pretty wild. So so at the time, you was there any motivation at all to try to find a bird dog or was upland hunting just completely outside of your universe at that time? I lived for I lived for fly fishing. Okay. I mean, when I wasn't, you know, I I've run a bunch of different businesses over the years, but uh at that point I was I was starting up yet another business, and uh, I didn't have time for something on top of fly fishing. Uh, but, um, you know, we took this dog out in a field across the street from our house one day and started going back and forth and back, and, and then he just froze. And then his tail went up and his right front foot went up, and I walked over to see what was wrong with him, and a pheasant flushed in front of him, and I thought, Wow, if I can get an adrenaline rush like that, it beats all the trout I've ever caught put together in my life. That's crazy. Was that the first time you'd ever seen a dog point? Yeah. Wow. That's, I mean, you know, we, we, I love talking to people about their upland hunting stories, how they got into it, but that's, you just, you just never quite know, I guess, where that spark is going to hit. I mean, for me, I can remember the first grouse that ever flushed and, and it was, wasn't a dog on point, but it was electrifying in that. Like you, like you said. So then, from there, was it basically no looking back? You were you were into it with this dog. What were those early experiences like? Well, I was a really bad dog owner, and he was a really bad dog, and I was a really bad shot. But we muddled through the first season, and uh, I actually hit one bird. Um, after that, I I had recently taught a guy how to fly fish a specific technique on a specific river here. 
I'm reading a magazine, and uh, the the story I'm reading is all about how to shoot like a predator. And I thought, that's a pretty good concept, because I am worthless when it comes to a shotgun. At least I put the right end up to my shoulder. But I looked at the byline and realized it's the guy that I taught to fly fish. So I called him, and I said, now it's your turn. And I went out, and he was a basically a professional shotgunning instructor. And the first thing he did with me was showed me that I was left eye dominant. No wonder I missed everything. <laughs> so uh, without having to switch to shooting left-handed, which I've since tried several times unsuccessfully, we fixed that problem as best we could, and it went on from there. And uh, you know, over the years, I've done a whole bunch of things in that world. And uh, and I guess the real transition was when the Outdoor Channel called and uh, said, you know, we really like what what you did on so and so's show and so and so's show. Why don't you make a fly fishing show for us? And I said, uh, yeah, all right, but can I put some bird hunting in it? And they said, sure. And uh, so we ended up pioneering high-definition television for the outdoor industry uh, with my series. And uh, since then, I've gone on to create a whole bunch of other TV series and uh, finally uh, decided uh, I want to focus on the one I like the most, and that's bird hunting and bird dogs. Excellent. And so for the listeners, now you and I were chatting a little bit. I'm, I am familiar with with you and some of your work, but I would imagine there are some listeners that probably are not. So give us a little background on, you know, you kind of provided some history there. What is it today that you are doing in the TV world? Tell us about your current show. I am the luckiest guy in the world in that I, I, I own a TV series called Wing Shooting USA. Um, I'm lucky to have a whole bunch of great sponsors who make it worthwhile. And once in a while, I get to put, put a buck or two in my pocket thanks to them. But the show is on up to 10 different TV networks, depending on how you get your television, satellite, or cable, or whatever, even over the air for that matter. Um, Wing Shooting USA is the uh, the most watched bird hunting TV show in the world. Uh, we like to think we do a pretty good job of it. We are currently working on our 11th season of shows. I'm, uh, in fact, later today I got to start writing episode number 107. But the show is all about bird dogs and bird hunting, and that's the priority right there. My goal is to show people how to have a good time outdoors, uh, in the uplands, only the uplands, and, um, seems to be working. I'm, uh, knocking wood as I say that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, you know, certainly, as you say, you are, a, you're a lucky guy and, and it would appear that way, but it's, but it's cool to see that, uh, you know, you're thankful for that. And that's, that's always a good thing. I, I enjoy the show and, and I think you do a pretty good job. I mean, you, you travel around like the episodes that I've seen, you're not just focused on the West. I mean, you do a pretty good job of getting around and highlighting different areas, right? Yeah. You know, the, the show's called Wing Shooting USA. Yep. Um, and so far we've hunted in 24 different states over the years, Wow! uh, try to broaden our geographic scope. Um, there is a strong, uh, what I'll call West of the Mississippi emphasis because, um, number one, that's where everybody wants to be. That's where everybody tries to go when they travel. That's where most of the bird hunting access is. And, you know, funny thing is that a lot of people don't understand, unlike other people in this world, <clears throat> the outdoor TV world, when I'm not making TV shows about bird hunting, I'm bird hunting. It's, it's my life. Yeah. I, uh, I'm packing right now for a trip that uh, will take me to northwest Nevada, spend a lot of time down there, again, on the edge of the Great Basin where all the chuckers live. Um, but uh, it's a lifestyle for me, and... Uh, whether we're hunting uh, uh, bobwhites in Alabama or uh, uh, sharp tails in North Dakota, it's it's what I do when I'm off duty as well as on duty. Yeah, excellent. And, and like you mentioned, you are still hunting. You know, I had a guy messaging me yesterday. I was I posted something on Instagram. I was walking my dog, just getting exercise because our seasons are closed up. And, and I had a guy, he uh, messaged me and was teasing me. He said, you know, you need to move somewhere where hunting season's still open. And I kind of gave him the, yeah, 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 I hear you. You know, and, and then I thought about 
calling you today and we were chatting. I called you a couple of weeks ago and you were packing up to hit, head out and, and do some hunting. So you are still one of the lucky ones. You're still out there bird hunting, as I know a lot of our listeners are too. Give us a rewind a little bit on your 2018 season. Where are you in the season? Is this, are you past the peak? Is this the peak season? Are you just kind of getting out every chance you can trying to savor it? Where are you right now in the 2018, 19 bird season? Well, we're on the, we're on the, you know, the down slope, if okay. you will. It's the, it's the tail end of the season. As I look out the window, there's snow on the ground, more okay. coming down. Where I'm going to be on Friday, uh, we'll probably have a little bit of snow. It'll probably be 20 degrees colder. But um, every day is a good day. There's no peak to the season. The, uh, you know, you, you're grateful for every bird that gets up in front of you. Um, there is, uh, you know, there's so many variables to how a bird population in any given area is affected that you can't count on there being any meat of a season. You just go and you hope to find birds, and that's the best reason to bring a dog because they're way better at it than we are. But every day outside that you get to walk around is a blessing in one way or another. I've, I've done a couple magazine articles and a, a whole bunch of blog posts on all the other stuff that's cool about going hunting, whether it's uh, emptying a bottle with a former cattle rustler to finding an eagle nest on the top of a cliff all that stuff adds up as well. Uh, finding birds, um, we'll probably find a few. We're going to some chucker country. Luckily, at the bottom of the hills, there's sometimes some quail there. It's been a pretty skinny year for the places that I go for chuckers, but it's been better than a lot of years. And, and uh, maybe uh, some of your listeners know that out here in the West, we've had a hellacious fire season, and not just the fires in the West, uh, the Western part of the West, uh, where towns like Paradise went up in flames, but range fires that affect the wild birds, whether it's sage grouse, uh, valley quail, chuckers, they're, they've been devastating for the last three or four years. So we're grateful for every single set of tracks we see, let alone birds that fly in front of the muzzle. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly people that are familiar with Project Upland know that we are big advocates about the experience and everything else beyond the flush shot and hopefully kill, you know, so that's uh, certainly in line with, with the way that we think. And I think where a lot of our listeners are now on those wildfires, certainly I have, you know, I'm in the Midwest, so I've seen it for sure. And I know that it's been extremely bad. I mean, beyond destroying habitat, what other effect are they, are they hurting your access? Are they preventing you from getting where you need to go? I mean, I imagine they're just devastating. Yeah. You know, and, and in terms of access, uh, once the fires are out, um, there's not a problem, but there's nothing there. Uh, and I say that with a caveat because I'm thinking of two particular places that were just, I, they were moonscapes. Um, but I went up into them anyway because I knew there was free water there. And sure enough, uh, just the first 10 yards on either side of the creek in both of these canyons was enough riparian area that hadn't been affected by fires to, to where... Um, both chuckers and quail would come down and uh, not only get water every day, but would hang in that cover because it was the only cover left. So there's always a chance. And, uh, and so I'm not discouraging anybody from giving up on hunting just because they hear that, you know, wide swaths of territory have been burned to the ground. I'm just suggesting you have to be a little bit more creative and maybe a little bit more pugnacious about it about how you, you know, you develop a strategy and where you go and how you, how you hunt it. Yeah, definitely. I, you know, when we talk about upland hunting, certainly a lot is brought up. I think when you talk about upland bird habitat, a lot is brought up regarding disturbances. And, you know, there's one thing we have to give upland birds credit for, and that is that they are used to dealing with disturbances and they've been surviving here for a very long time. So that, you know, that example that you provided, that speaks speaks very highly of, of those birds' ability and will to survive. Yeah, and, you know, it, it, even without a fire, what you learn, uh, everybody learns every year, is that um, 
that was the go-to place last year, but all those birds were pushed out this morning by the two coyotes who walked through. Sure. So we have to go over to the next drainage or at least to the next patch of cover. Um, and if you can't be flexible, then you're probably not not going to be, uh, you're not going to see as many birds as you would if you're trying to be a little bit more creative and strategic at the same time. Yeah, definitely. Now, a comment you made a little while ago, you were talking about your friend that you taught you showed him some fly fishing techniques, and then he eventually talked to you about shooting. Your show is called Wing Shooting USA. Wing shooting is a really popular topic on this podcast, especially amongst our listeners. When we do, when we do an episode with, a, I've done one with a shooting coach. I've, I've talked to some other people about instinctive wing shooting methods. It tends to be very, very popular, and I get feedback from people that are curious about it. Whether it's specific to that gentleman way back when, what he taught you about shooting, or what you've learned today. Can you speak a little bit about, is there a particular wing shooting technique that you abide by or, you know, what should people, what could people do to improve their wing shooting? Can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. Um, With one caveat, if you watch my television show, you know this, uh, but the most frequent compliment I get about my show is, I love it because you shoot worse than I do. Um, (laughs) And apparently, uh, other the, the few other Upland TV shows out there, their hosts never miss, um, which I'm, I'm astounded at, and I'm very jealous, of course. But, sure. But I, uh, you know, I, I miss a lot. Uh, you know, I consider it a good day uh, on Wild Birds. If I shoot fifty percent, I'm I'm really happy. Yeah. Um, because you know where where we hunt mainly for chuckers for wild chuckers. Usually you're falling off a cliff as you're pulling the trigger. So, you know, 50% is great for me. But to get back to your question, Nick, that uh, you know, there's a few basic things that I've learned, and I've learned them because I've taken a bazillion lessons from some great people. Sure. Olympians to old codgers and everybody in between. Gun fit, yeah, important. Not going to be the impediment you think it is. So get a gun you like, get comfortable with it, learn it like the Marines learn their rifles. Yeah. Be able to take it apart, put it back together, know where every piece is so that you can shoot it blindfolded. But don't shoot it blindfolded. <laughs> that would be stupid. Yes. <laughs> All right. The things that are important when you get out in the field uh, are, number one, most shots are going to be at 20 to 25 yards. Shoot an open choke. If you've ever patterned a gun, you realize that even at 30 yards, you know, an improved cylinder uh, pattern is going to be about three feet across. That's not a very big pattern. You can kill most birds with one pellet. Open up your chokes. You'll be a lot better off. The other thing to remember is to wait when the birds fly. Let them get out to 25 yards. You know, in, in, in the old days, English fly fishers would make a cast. They'd see the fish come up to that fly. And before they set the hook, they'd say, God save the queen or king, depending on how far, how long ago it was. <laughs> Say the same thing before you pull the trigger. Let that pattern open up a little bit. The other thing, and this is the shoot-like-a-predator idea that Buzz Fawcett taught me a long time ago. When the bird gets up, nothing matters. Foot position, how you're holding the gun, how long the gun is, what the drop at, at heel is, none of that matters. All that matters is that you see the bird, you see nothing else. Not only do you see the bird, you see the eye on the bird. If you're looking at the eye of the bird and you can get that gun up to your shoulder, you're probably going to kill it. It's all about shooting like a predator. Lead, all of that follow through. Yeah, all well and good, especially when you're shooting skeet or sporting clays or even trap for that matter. But in the woods or you know, on on in the in the quail fields, you really don't need a lot of either one, except on those real hard crossers. And by then, if you're not seeing the bird, it won't matter anyhow. That's great stuff, Scott. That 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 kind of hits on some really good pillars. I think that I've sort of picked up and assimil- assimilated from talking to people much more knowledgeable about shooting than I, and much better shots than I. That but that's a practical, no nonsense kind of foundation that I think would do people very, very well if they abided by, by those things. And, you know, I've, well, yeah, 
that I, I'm a simple guy. I mean, I can't remember all that stuff. <laughs> right, you right. Have to remember two steps. Um, I was a magician, musician, and the reason I became a musician is I could count all the way up to four. Um, if you can, <laughs> if you can remember a couple basic things and practice them over and over and over again, then it all does become instinctive. <laughs> yes, yes. So, so just keep it simple. And um, and focus on the things that are important, and then when when you miss, nobody cares. <laughs> right, right, yeah. And the bird's happy. Yeah, yeah, you know, uh, <laughs> seed seed for next year. You know, all that all that jazz. Yeah, know. yeah. Glass half full for sure. But yeah, you know the the visual focus, that hard lock visual focus, that that's so critical. And then the waiting part. I mean, that is. It's so challenging because we've touched on it a few times, at least for me it is, but we've touched on that adrenaline rush and, you know, and your body is, it's like you're, you want to be moving unconsciously in that moment, but it's, it's so hard. I think for me sometimes not to rush, especially, you know, I hunt a lot in the rough, I hunt a lot in the rough grouse woods and you have an obstructed view and it's, it's not as easy to get that visual lock and you just feel, even though I believe you. Most often, I believe you have more time than you think you do. It feels like your time is just slipping away, and so it's it's hard to do. But I think that's that's really good advice for people that want to improve their wing shooting. Yeah, when you're in the woods, or you're you know, no matter where you are, when you're in, in you know, cut corn in South Dakota, it doesn't matter where you are. In the field is not the time to remember all that crap. Yeah. Um, by then, it better be it better be part of your your psyche. It better be deep down in your soul, so that when the bird gets up, you don't think at all. Uh, that's what the whole point of uh, what you know what some people call the Churchill method yes. or instinctive shooting or whatever else. It's it, you know by then it's too late. You better have it all down. And so you know I used to teach people how to be interviewed on TV. You know politicians and bank presidents and all that. And, and there's a commonality. The only way to get better at it is to do it dozens and dozens and hundreds and thousands of times. So in their case, it was when the red light goes on and the lens is pointed at you, you better, you better get used to that. And let's practice. It's the same with when the dog hits a point, you walk up, the bird goes in the air, you better be used to it by then. So practice. You know, nobody, in no other sport... Are Americans as arrogant as they are in shooting? Everybody born in this country thinks that they're a, they're, they're a natural shooter. They wouldn't go out to um, Pebble Beach and try and uh, play that course without a little bit of practice beforehand or a lot of practice. Sure. Nobody nobody plays baseball in the major leagues without setting foot on the diamond as a you know peewee little league player. We practice and practice and practice all these other things that, that, that use the same skills, hand-eye coordination, that sort of thing. But everybody assumes that because they were born in the United States, where the Second Amendment is, well, it's, it's on top of all but one other amendment. <laughs> they, think, they think we're natural shooters. We need to practice. And, and this, in this day and age, there's, there's so, way, so many ways to do that. But only perfect practice makes perfect. Yeah, that's that comes out of take that a lesson, watch the videos, carefully apply that stuff to your own shooting. Yeah, I I know I've heard that perfect practice makes makes perfect. You know, I've heard that in the music world, trying to learn how to play guitar, and and that's yeah. it's very key in that. But uh, on well, that's that, where I learned it first. That's that's what I that's what I figured. That's what I figured, Scott. I'm um, I'm still working on that for sure. I've I've got a couple of guitars by my desk here. I pick them up every once once and again, but they're uh, that's a that's another one that requires perfect practice. Well, I'm back at that too. You know, uh, <laughs> I, I finally finally dug my old guitar out and uh, and I keep remembering that. So it's a it's a good reminder. Yeah, 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 definitely. Uh, on that note, do you have preferred methods of practicing you know do you take your shotgun out and mount mounted in front of the mirror do you shoot sporting clays once a week every summer do you have any things that you that you really like and think you get value out of yeah i i do think there's some value in mounting your gun safely uh, just for the record so your lawyer and my lawyer um yeah. are, are happy uh your gun is unloaded um 
you check that every time you pick it up. Um, but swinging your gun, mounting your gun more than anything, slow, you know, slowly at first. When I when I used to teach a bunch of beginners, uh, the first thing we do is mount the gun in slow motion a hundred times, and then speed it up and speed it up so that your gun mount, <clears throat> which is the only thing that really matters in the field anymore, is natural and grooved in so that it's always the same. So do that, swing on, you know, the corners of the office wall, swing on uh, uh, inanimate objects in a safe direction outdoors. All of that really matters um, a lot. And then go to the skeet field. And I say skeet for one uh, reason and one reason only. It was developed by bird hunters to imitate bird hunting. Trap does a pretty good job of a lot of the same kinds of targets. They're all going away from you, though. They may be going away at a 20-degree or a 45-degree angle, but that's about it. You want real bird hunting situations. It's going to be, you know, ski. I love sporting clays. I used to make a TV show about sporting clays. I think it's a great sport, but it's not bird hunting. Yeah, definitely. Now, the, you know, the gun mount, practicing the gun mount and making sure that is consistent. I feel like that kind of leads into the gun fit topic, which you did touch on and said that, you know, kind of your opinion is that it's not going to be the impediment or make or break you. When it comes to actually owning shotguns, do you have a range of dimensions or something that you're comfortable with shooting? I mean, you're not getting things custom stocked to one specific set of dimensions. What's your, what's your take on that? Well, um, for the record, I'm not a gun geek. Yep. They're just tools to me. Um, I love the guns I have. I shoot CZ shotguns. I know that's going to shock a lot of people. <laughs> um, they give they give me a lot of money to do it, but they're also great guns. They're well made, and they, the fit and finish on these Turkish guns is as good as most Italian guns that I have. Um, <clears throat> to me, guns are just a tool. I'm going to drop one in a lake. I'm going to fall off a cliff and it's going to break my fall, which is better than breaking my leg. That's my fundamental belief about guns. All the instructors, all the trick shooters, all the folks who I admire who can kill anything anywhere talk a good game about all of that stuff. Drop it, heel, drop it. Um, you know, all, anyway, all of that yep. stuff, gun fit stuff. And then they go out and they shoot with their gun between their legs or behind their back or they pull the trigger with their <laughs> tongue or whatever. It is, <laughs> yeah. Which tells me none of that really matters. So find a gun you like, get to know it well, and then look at the bird. Yeah, I think, you know, I'm kind of at a, at a point where I'm at. And I, I believe that being comfortable with the gun that you do have, you know, it's got to be, it's got to be, you know, within reason, it's, you know, it yeah. probably can't have yeah. a, a six inch stock on it or something, but as long as it's within reason and you have that comfort and that consistent gun mount, and then, you know, do the other things that you've talked about, the visual focus and, and all that stuff. I mean, you're going to, you're going to get more value out of that than having some sort of specific set of tailored dimensions, but. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I mean, to, to your point again, though, I, I shoot, I shoot virtually always, I shoot the double gun. I've shot over and unders. I've shot side by side of all all descriptions. Um, I've shot ten thousand dollar guns and nine hundred dollar guns. Um, I've shot English stock and I've shot pistol grip shot stocks. I, I again, I uh, you know within reason, you know as long as it doesn't weigh eleven pounds, I I think they're all just dandy. Yep, definitely. And I think I think that perspective is well received here. You know, we've certainly had some episodes where we talked about vintage guns and we talk a lot about side by sides, but appreciate, you know, your perspective in that it is it is a tool and you want to be able to use it well and use it comfortably and and there are many it comes in many forms and and that's the neat thing about guns is they can be so individual and they can have differences and there's different flavors for different people. Now, if you were going to build your maybe say ideal prototypical bird gun, you don't have to get, get specific about brand or make or anything, but what would it look like? Uh, hard to say. Okay. Love them all. Don't care. Cool. Um, and in fact, that, that leads uh, ideally and naturally leads into, you know, something else we should talk about. And that is, 
um, the impediments to recruiting, reactivating, and retaining participants. Yes. You know, I, 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 this, this R3 thing that a lot of people are talking about, how the, you know, the survival of our, whatever you call it, sport, pastime, passion, hobby, depends on new participants. And we could spend all day talking about why that's true, but fundamentally for listeners who don't understand that yet, there is an excise tax levied on every firearm and every round of ammunition and a few other pieces of gear uh, that funds virtually all wildlife management and land acquisition in this country. Uh, it, is, um, it, it, it is founded in a piece of legislation called the Pittman-Robertson Act. Yep. And you never see that tax because it's paid by the guys who make the guns and make the ammo, but you can bet it's passed on to the cost, uh, to you and the cost of the, the ultimate product. If people aren't buying guns and ammo, hunting vests, and a few other things, uh, there's nothing out there to fund uh, the biologists and the land managers and the, the habitat work and uh, all the other stuff that uh, matters to us in our sport. So how do we get more of those people? Well, we show them that guns aren't a big deal. We show them that dogs aren't a big deal, as you've mentioned off mic. You know, whether you have a dog or not is immaterial. You'd look silly just walking around out there, but if you got a shotgun in your hands, uh, all of a sudden uh, people are thinking, hey, that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are a whole bunch of other impediments out there as well. And, and, and I, uh, frankly, uh, you know, I was doing R3 before R3 was even a glimmer in the eye of the National Shooting Sports Foundation, who, by the way, I love. Yes. They were the first sponsor of my television show. They're the ones who said, what are you going to do next? And I said, I'm going to do this. And they said, hey, we'll take that. But anyway, there, there's a lot of, lot of barriers to the, a lot of the concepts of, of, of what many well-meaning organizations are trying to do right now. And God bless them. They can do it. And there's opportunity there. But think about this, Nick, and everybody out there, think about this. For the most part, how hard is it to get an urban-dwelling, single-parent family's child to pick up hunting and carry it on as a lifelong endeavor? Here's the barriers. They got no money. They got no access. They got no transportation. They don't own a gun. They don't own a dog. They wouldn't know where to go. And that's not even counting the PETA folks who are going to rag on them when they go to school the next week mm-hmm. and tell them they went on, on a hunting trip. The low-hanging fruit is where we're going to start this thing and build momentum. And that's people just like you and me. The best prospects, the best future hunters, are people who think and act and live just like us. Your neighbors, your co-workers, people like that. Yet we ignore all them for, again, God bless them, keep doing it, guys. The youth, the urban residents, all this stuff where the long run never ever pays off in a slide, let alone a long slide. It's always short. We should have people like us who like us coming along on our hunting trips. Whether they shoot the first time or not is immaterial. But think about this. Your next door neighbor asked you what you did last weekend and you tell him, he says, wow, that sounds pretty cool. That really means, can I go? Yep. You got the guns. You can lend him a gun, you got the places to go, you got the ammo, you got the dog. All of those things are not barriers anymore. Plus, we already know this guy likes it. And if you don't believe any of this, go and help out at one of the youth hunts that many of our great, well-meaning organizations put on every year. Parents drop them off, pick them up at the end of the day, couldn't care less what the kid's doing. It's just that the kid's out of their hair for the day. There's no commitment there. Yep. Kids have never picked up a gun. They don't know which end to put up to their shoulder. They're never going to pick up another gun because there's none in the house. How do you make a hunter out of that person? It's too dang hard. Yeah, I think that's very challenging. That is a topic. I mean, you hit on a lot of great stuff there, Scott. That's a topic that that comes up often. You know, and I, I worked in the conservation world for a couple of years, and we talked about you know our chapters doing youth days, and and we we had pretty serious discussions about what the realities are of, you know, trying to walk through, okay, so the kid attends the youth day today. What is, what 
is going to happen between today and the time that he buys a hunting license to make sure that he buys a hunting license and continues on, like, like you said. Now, again, I don't think we can say it enough, but the organizations that are doing these youth days and providing these opportunities, I mean, we can't thank you enough. And I'm not, no one's suggesting to stop doing that, but the, one of the drivers and the ideas behind R3, which for we, we have talked about on the show, but for anybody that doesn't know, recruitment, retention, and reactivation, one of the drivers is look at those demographics that have the means, the capabilities, the money, and the time to take up hunting and to do it well and successfully. And that, you know, I am a millennial and that is, that's a, a very targeted demographic for, for some people that are thinking about it in the way that you are thinking about it. And it's very important to not forget about those people, the people that could, you know, they could flip on a dime and tomorrow they could be the most passionate upland hunter in the world if they were given the opportunity. Well, unfortunately, most millennials, number one, couldn't care less about going hunting. They could, they probably really wanted to tell everybody they ate wild, wild game last night, mm-hmm. but they wouldn't want to gather it themselves. But, but uh, most of them can't afford it. The peer pressure about owning a gun, let alone killing something with your bare hands, is, is too great. But this is a chestnut from way back. But in the old days, we used to say, if a kid hasn't been been hunting by age 11, they never will. All right, who are the best people to influence those kids? Well, the studies tell us that it's their father. Mm-hmm. Not a parent, their father. Okay, so what if we get their father hunting? We've just completed the chain. Yeah. That's the right way. Yeah, and, and it's a very unpopular viewpoint. The politically correct way to do this is to talk about recruiting minorities and youth and women and all these other cool uh, categories of demographic. But I'm in the business of efficiency, and unfortunately, that means I make a lot of people mad when I suggest it. No, you know who we need to recruit? More middle-aged white guys, because they're the ones who have, as you said, the means to go hunting. They, in turn will create the next generation because that next generation already lives in their house. That is a topic, like you said, we could go on all day about that. And we might... I'd, I'd rather talk about dogs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We might come up with a good idea or two or we might not. But yeah, with that, let's let's transition a little bit because you've got a book that you wrote and it involves dogs. It is, it's called What Dogs Taught Me, right? What the Dogs Taught Me, yeah. That same meeting where the Outdoor Channel said, hey, um, we want you to make a fly fishing show. You know, so I went home from, from California on that trip and they called me a couple days later and said, we're launching an all high definition channel. We need more titles. What else do you want to do? And I said, uh, someday I'm going to write a book called What the Dogs Taught Me. And they said, okay, we'll take that. So, uh, poof, all of a sudden I had two contracts with the Outdoor Channel. Um, made a TV series called that, made eight other TV series in between then and when I got shed of uh, my responsibilities at Field and Stream and Outdoor Life, simply to write the dang book, which I did in 2013. And it's, you know, it. It was a. It was good for a whole bunch of reasons. It was great therapy. It was um, good to get it off my chest. But it was. It was written to help people who, who are looking for something beyond, beyond a training manual. It's certainly not that. You know, the subtitle to the book is something like, suggestions and observations to make you a better hunter, shooter, and dog owner. In fact, I, I should pull up. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah. And that's all it is. It's it's the stuff that's in nobody else's books. So read all the other books, whether it's, uh, you know, it, it's the great literature that's out there or it's the methods on how to train a dog or shoot. But all the blanks, I like to think I filled in some of them that will help you go to the next level and save you a couple more years in your hunting bird dog training shooting career it makes the learning curve a little less steep yeah i think that's what you know a lot of people are looking for i mean so much of it could really we could 
be talking about upland hunting. We could be talking about just about anything. I mean, it takes a few things to create, you know, a passionate, somebody that's passionate about something. And that's, you know, they have to have an inherent interest and curiosity. You can most often utilize a book or other resources to flatten the learning curve, like you said, and make things a little bit more accessible move you along that path further you know let's look at somebody else's the mistakes that somebody else made so we can advance ourselves on that path further but then you can do all that but unless you have the drive to get out there and do it and make your own mistakes and learn things on your own it you know it takes a combination of all that stuff to create somebody that's as passionate about upland hunting as you or myself well, yeah, it, you know that's part of it. That's absolutely part of it. Uh, there's a, and there's a lot of kind of, uh, frankly, unique uh, observations I've noticed in the last, well, since the book was published, a lot of people have written articles on the same same topics, but a lot of it was at the time unique. Uh, but w- I describe it this way: if you're lucky enough to have a really good friend who will take you hunting with him or her, it's like spending a couple years in in the field with that person. Yes. All the stuff that they, you know, the remarks they make, the asides, the observations, the ideas that they convey to you, that's the stuff I tried to put in the book. You know, it's everything from, you know, if you, if you swing wide on your pointing dog, he won't want to heel alongside you as you're trying to flush the bird. You know, nobody ever put that down before. Yep. But it's so logical to me. I mean, it's forehead slapping stuff. But nobody put it in book form. Yeah. Is there a structure to the book in that? Is it set up in, you know, do you address shooting or how, how is it laid out? Well, I'm opening it right now. <laughs> <laughs> I've got it pulled up on yeah, Amazon a, in front of me. <laughs> here, here's the table of contents here. Um, the main segment, what your dog wants, how your dog thinks, at least I think, Uh, communicating with your dog, shooting better, uh, training for both you and the dog, hunting better, the care and feeding of you and your dog, Uh, skills every hunter should have, from sharpening a knife to useful knots that separate the men from the boys, and then a whole bunch of tips from pro guides, outfitters, and things like that. And then finally, I get about 4,000 questions from from viewers and listeners every year, I picked out the best ones and put them in there with my answers. Cool. So if, I mean, every dumb answer, every reasonable answer and everything in between is in there. So, it, you know, hopefully you pick up the book and you become a, you know, you, you add years of experience at my expense instead of your own. Yes. Yeah. I hope. Practical, no nonsense, simple. That's I like it. Yeah, but there's still a whole bunch of philosophy in there. In fact, it's funny that the publisher, uh, my editor at the publishing house in New York, called me and said, "You know, you don't have in here yet. You don't have a forward. Why'd you write the book?" So I had to write write a forward last, uh, which is probably how you should do it. Advice to book authors: save the forward for last. <laughs> but uh, but you know, you know, here's here's why I hunt, and that's what the forward became. As I noted earlier, there is nothing like watching a dog slam a point and then the resulting flush and ideally shot and retrieve and all that. Watching an animal other than ourselves in the field, working with us, communicating subliminally by motion, by look, by mental telepathy toward a common goal of feeding the tribe. I mean, this has been happening for thousands and thousands of years. It's in our DNA. And we hunters are lucky enough to be able to recreate that every day if we want with our dogs. That is unfreaking believable. To be able to do that without the assistance of pharmaceuticals or magic mushrooms or anything else to communicate with another species toward a common goal, that is just pretty damn cool. I 
sincerely agree with that, Scott. That is that is very well put, and we talk about it a lot. We, you and I mentioned earlier, you know, talk about hunting without a dog, and there's there's certainly space for that. It's how I got started, but it is a game changer when you when you get the bird dog involved. And I mean, I I don't need to say anything more on it because I think you you put it very well. It's why I hunt. So, looking ahead, we've got. Wing Shooting USA. Now, you mentioned 11th season, right? Right. 11th season. You're over 100 episodes. What is When will the 11th season that will take place this upcoming fall, this upcoming hunting season? We, we start new episodes uh, on many of our networks in uh, late June, whenever third quarter starts. Okay. And typically, it's the last week in June. Um, and we start then for for a couple of reasons. Number one, because sometimes it takes a lot of our sponsors that long to finally approve a budget. Um, <laughs> there's a there's a, there's a lot of production involved, and there are there are guys out there who make shows much faster than we do, uh, and much cheaper than we do. Uh, but you get what you pay for. So we spend uh, you know we're done shooting. In the field now, we finished that in late November. Okay, we were editing new shows before that. It takes us that long to make the shows the way I think we need to make the shows. Um, so they debut last week in June, um, and uh, they run on many of our networks for third and fourth quarter and then we flip over on a few and we go to some other new networks uh on new year's day so no matter how you get your television you'll be able to get wing shooting usa that's my goal it always has been my goal that's one reason i left the outdoor channel many years ago uh they wanted to restrict me to an exclusive and i didn't want to do that uh but anyway that's how it happens that's upcoming 11th season. Now I know that I've seen some, some episodes. I think I watched them on Facebook. Is, are there, are there episodes available on Facebook? Well, I don't put whole episodes up there very often because it's just, uh, that's not the right place for it. But virtually every episode we've done in the last five years, at least is on YouTube. So if you just go to Stop Linden Outdoors, go to YouTube and you'll be able to watch them there. They're not in high definition there, and uh, <clears throat> the screen can only get so big there. But uh, if you need your fix, you can get it there. And the reason I started putting all of the episodes up there, which apparently is unusual, um, is you would be astounded at how many people in the Middle East and in Australia and South America love bird hunting and uh, want to be able to watch the show. And that's the only way they can get it. I am not actually entirely surprised by that because I do see listener statistics for this podcast and you know there's a little there's a little map of the world and I mean we pretty much have listens coming from this podcast all over the world and I I you know some of them maybe they're maybe that's some kind of a spam <laughs> spam download or, yeah. or listen or yeah. something but but with that said, we do have, I know for a fact that we have some international listeners and, and that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I'm happy that you have it up there because again, I've talked about it before. I use YouTube in in the off season. It's, it's my savior. Sometimes, like you said, I need my fix. I got to go on there and watch some bird hunting. And so I've, I well, have seen a, an episode on there and other, at least others, we, the listeners know they can check some of those out if they want to. Yeah, and and now you know I'm 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 not the guy to talk to about this technology, but many of our bigger networks put us on their um, whatever they call their video on demand. Sure. Yep. And then it's on Roku and Amazon Prime and uh, uh, many of the other network apps that are out there also have it. So you can catch it in you know in HD on some of those right on your regular TV. Oh, that's cool. Amazon Prime. I mean, that's pretty a lot of people have that, so that would be a that would be a good spot for people to look at too. I I will 79 million people have. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. You know the numbers. That's that's quite a few. That's a big audience that you're speaking to. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cool. I'll uh, I will do a little bit of little bit of research and dig in there and I'll I'll throw links in the when I post this on the webpage. I'll post some links for some people if they want to they're interested and they want to check that out. 
Great. Uh, we we covered a lot, Scott. I mean, this was a this was a great conversation. I think before I let you go, I'll ask you about for those people that we're talking about, the people that tomorrow could be could be the next best upland hunter. I mean, you mentioned finding a friend. Uh, certainly, that's going to be one of their biggest biggest advantages if, is if you can find somebody that is a friend and can be a mentor to you, that's going to, that's going to accelerate your path very much. So do you have any more or additional advice for that person that they want to get deeper into upland hunting? Go for the right reasons. If, if you're out there hoping you're going to bring groceries home, stay the hell out of my woods. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I truly believe in the wild food movement. I do a feature every day sponsored by Yeti about that stuff. But if, if you're only out there to kill stuff and bring it home and, and eat it, you're in the wrong game. Um, so probe your inner motivations. What do you really want out of this? Do you want to enjoy yourself outside? Great. Come on along. In fact, I'll take you. If you want to watch a great dog or a not-so-great dog work in the field, come along. I'm ready for you. <laughs> um, if you're looking for some physical challenges, if you're up for it, join me at the bottom of one of the Chucker Hills and let's go to the top. It's, it's about all of that stuff. And that's what you want out of it. If you know, if that's not your motivation, you might have another one and I can't, I can't judge what, what it is, but, but try it, go in slowly, find somebody who can guide you, read all you can about it. Watch all the videos about it, learn about gun safety, and go out and enjoy it. Well said, Scott. Now, chucker hunting is not something that I have had the pleasure to do, but it's certainly on my list. The way that you speak about it, I assume that you are a believer that it's it's as badass as it gets. Is that right? Well, except for Himalayan snowcock hunting, which <laughs> could could be a little bit harder. Sure. Yeah, you know, the bastards, they run up, and then they fly down, and they run up, and they fly down. And, and you know, that all of that is true. They're hard to hit. They're hard to find. Um, you get your, you know, it's more exercise than most people are willing to participate in, but that's okay. Yeah. You know, it's not for everybody. Just like, you know, blue grouse hunting isn't for everybody, or, you know, ptarmigan hunting in the high 14ers of Colorado. There's something out there for everybody. Yeah. You could be walking flat ground uh, east of the Missouri River in South Dakota, which I also love to do. Yeah. Um, so find you know find a place you want to go, and figure out how to go there, and what to hunt there, and how to hunt there. Just have the right motivation. Great advice. Great advice, and I do think that. Upland birds provide a great opportunity for that kind of adventure travel. Like you said, find a place that you want to go. I think that's awesome. Scott, thank you so much for joining us on the Project Upland podcast. This is my pleasure having you on. This was a, this was a great, informative conversation. I know the listeners are going to love it. Thank you so much, and I hope we'll speak again. We will. Thank you, and uh, see you all in the field. Sounds good. Keep doing what you're doing. Take care. been listening to the project upland podcast as your host nick larson i'd like to thank you all for listening tuning in each and every week and i'd like to thank our partners on the project upland podcast bringing you each and every episode of the show we thank pine ridge grouse camp onyx maps gumleaf usa and dogtra callers you could be next week's winner of the project upland podcast giveaway all you gotta do is make a meaningful contribution to the show leave us a rating leave us a review subscribe to the show share the podcast post or send us some feedback or a guest suggestion appreciate all my listeners i'd love to hear from you send me an email at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com Head over to projectupland.com for more great stuff, blogs, articles, gun reviews, book reviews, films, magazine link. It's all there. Head over to projectupland.com. That's it for this episode of the Project Upland Podcast. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you on the next show.
Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.